This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. With that, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we will be this morning. John 6 is pivotal in this gospel. It begins with as many as 20,000 people following Jesus, and it ends with 11. Not 1,100, not 11,000, 1,100, uh, 11 people, 20,000 people, and it ends with 11 people following Jesus. And the verses that we're studying this morning are the turning point. They're kind of the watershed moment for a lot of people. So by the time these verses are over, the very next thing that John will say is, when many of Jesus' disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, who's going to do this? And then after this, they begin to turn away and they begin to leave Jesus. And so let's ask, what happens? What happens that there's 20,000 people and after this, there ends up with 11 people? And the answer is that Jesus does nothing more than tell the truth. But it's enough for a whole lot of people to turn and walk in the opposite direction. And so what we're confronted with this morning, what we need to wrestle with, is whether we're also going to hear the truth and turn away with the masses, or whether we will keep following him with the few. Even though the saying is hard. I never want to stand up here and sugarcoat this for us. Following Jesus is great. It's the best, but it doesn't mean it's always easy. And so we, will we turn and walk away with the masses or will we stay with Jesus even among a few? So there's critical verses here. This passage, the whole thing is critical. There's a few verses that I want to draw out, but here's where we need to start. Before we read the whole thing, look at John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6, 37. This sets the stage for everything else we do this morning. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here's what we need, and here's what we must contend with. Both. Jesus never casts away anyone who comes to him. That's what we need to hear, and it's what we need to contend with this morning. And here's why we do both of those things. Uh, The Bible is clear that lots of people don't end up with God. But that's not because they come to him and they're rejected. It's always because they never came. Did you get that? Lots of people aren't going to end up with God. But it's never because they've tried to come to God and he said, no, you're not good enough. It's always because they never came at all. Maybe people think about coming, but they decide against it. There are people who, who count the cost of coming and they just they don't want to pay it. They want to invest their lives foolishly in something else. 
People fall in love with the world and they just don't want to give that up. A major reason, major reason, is that they were never invited to come. They didn't know they were invited. And and that's why we share the gospel. That's why we send missionaries, is we want people to know that anybody who comes to Jesus won't be rejected, so just come. Everybody come. Let's go all over the world and tell everybody to come. The saddest reason, though, Those are all reasons that people might not end up with Jesus. But the saddest reason is that they were afraid to come because they thought they weren't good enough or they thought they weren't ready or they feared that Jesus would say, who who, who do you think, what, are you kidding me? No. They thought, maybe I'll come next month, you know, and then one month leads to another, and one year needs, leads to another after that. And they, and they never quite feel worthy. They never quite feel ready. So they never come at all. So this is the first thing we need to hear from Jesus this morning. If that's you in any way, you're in love with the world, you don't think it's worth the cost, or you just don't think you're worthy. Let's just settle this right now. If you come to Jesus, he never casts you out. He takes everybody who comes to him. So how do we do that? What does it mean? If I, if I just say that he takes everybody who comes to him, what does it mean? How do we come to Jesus? The answer is in these verses, and it's what we, we would probably call a paradox. Simultaneously, it's really simple, and everything about it is very profound. It ta- here's, here's all these paradoxes about coming to Jesus. It takes total commitment, yet you don't do anything. Coming to Jesus is a lifelong pursuit, but it happens instantaneously. And these verses that we look at this morning are some of Jesus' most important teaching that tell us all about that. How do we come to him? So let's read it. It's a longer section. I'm just going to read all the way through. You can follow along in your own Bible. And then I want to ask three questions. Three questions about Jesus inviting us to come and telling us that we'll never be rejected. We're going to pick it up at verse 35. I'm going all the way through verse 59. So just follow along, settle in. This is long. And remember, this is a hard saying from Jesus. Lots of people didn't like to hear this. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All, this is the key verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He, Jesus is talking about himself, has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes is eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is an incredible section. I could do weeks in here. I've just got one of them with you. So what I want to do is try to break a lot of this down and ask three really important questions and then listen to Jesus answer them. We could go all sorts of directions in here. But this breaks neatly, I think, into just one question per paragraph. So that's what we'll do. So here are the three questions we're going to ask. First, what does it mean specifically here, to believe in Jesus. If anybody who comes to him or believes in him, we'll see that that's the same idea, is never cast out. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? That's verses 35 to 40. Second, how is Jesus the bread of heaven? How is that possible? The Jews are grumbling and asking how. Let's ask how with them, but let's ask with faith, and let's ask expecting belief, not angrily. That's verses 41 to 51. And finally, why do we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? That's verses 52 to the end. So those three questions. What does believing in Jesus mean? Jesus says that he's the bread of, bread of heaven. How is that possible? And third, Jesus uses this imagery, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, for abiding in him, being united to him. Why do we have to be that close to him? Why do we have to be united to him? 
So first question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And here's why that question's important. So just look at both verses 39 and 40. Jesus doesn't lose people. He raises them up on the last day. That's his work. And, and this isn't just something that could happen. You know, this, this isn't just kind of a possibility that's held up there. Look at how he phrases this. This is the will of the Father. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, this giving of eternal life, this raising up when there should be death, but instead there's rebirth, this is the very reason that he's there in the first place, that he's there at all. That's why he says he hasn't come to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him, of him who sent me. He does, he does not mean that he and God, the Father, are in some kind of conflict or they have disagreeing agendas. He says it that way to point out their total agreement. And then he says each one of us is doing our part. But how? How does Jesus dying on the cross and, and rising again see to it that we can be raised up on the last day? And the answer is through believing. Specifically, and remember this phrase, when we believe, we receive him. When we believe, we receive him. Here's one of the most interesting observations that you're going to get out of John's gospel as a whole. It's all about belief in Jesus, and John wants you to put your faith in Jesus. But John never uses the words faith and belief. Whole gospel, he never says faith, he never says belief. Those are nouns. He uses, though, the verb to believe 98 times in the gospel. That cannot be an accident. It can't just be a word choice to never say faith and 98 times say believe has to be on purpose. So as students in the Bible, we have to ask why. Why would he do it like that? And I think it's because believing is active. And I, I don't mean in the sense that it requires us to do something. I mean that for us to believe, we decide what we will believe in. So the kind of belief, the kind of believing that John is pushing us toward is a kind of faith in Jesus that brings eternal life and gets us risen up on the last day. That's not a passive action. It's active believing. And so let me just see if I can put in place a picture that will help. Uh, it's not actually mine. It's just the picture that Jesus begins to unfold in, in verse 35 where we started reading. So there he says, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So come and believe. He's doing two things here. One is he's connecting those ideas, coming, in, coming to him and believing in him. You see that just right there? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Hunger is very similar to thirst in this case, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So those two ideas are connected. They're two essentials to life, food and water. And Jesus is using them to say, coming to him and believing in him gives you what's essential to eternal life. The second thing he's doing 
He's saying that coming and believing are actions of people who have faith in what they are coming to. What they're believing in, people are believing if they come to him that he can quench their thirst or he can give them nourishment. So let's take a water fountain, for instance. Here's the picture that Jesus is beginning to to draw out in verse 35 and we can just kind of put it in our own context. Let's take a water fountain. We've got several around the church. If I'm thirsty... I'm not just sitting across the room with faith that there is cold water that will come out of the water fountain if I, if I press that handle thing. If I'm thirsty, what am I going to do? I'm not just going to sit there and go, oh, how great is it that there's water in the water fountain? I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to the fountain. I'm going to the fountain because the fountain is where I know my thirst will be quenched. That's why Jesus can say, no one comes to me, him, and needs to worry that they might be rejected. By coming to him, already you're showing that you actively believe. You're going to him because you know he's the source of living water. He's the source of nourishing food. Believing is the foundation of the Christian life. So we just together recited the Apostles' Creed. That's why I'm bribing the children of our church with ice cream to memorize it. It's not foremost because I want them to know something. So when I was in third grade, I memorized, maybe you did this too, third, fourth grade, I memorized all the presidents of the United States in order. I think by that point we were up to the first George Bush. He was 41. So I could say 41 U.S. presidents in order. So what? So what? Being able to do that doesn't make me more patriotic. It doesn't enhance my my pride or joy in the United States of America. It's just something I know. But here is where our faith And knowing what we believe is very different. So here's what the Apostles' Creed does not say. I'm going to change one little word. And you're going to think it's probably the most insignificant word. But everything hinges on this. It does not say, I believe that God is the Father Almighty. I believe that Jesus Christ is is his only son. I believe that there is a Holy Spirit. Did you catch the word I changed? Hear the difference. It's true, not because we, not because it, we believe it out there. It's true because I believe it in here. We say in the Apostles' Creed, not I believe that God is God the Father Almighty. I believe that Jesus Christ is our son. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Believing that God is a father doesn't do anything. Believing in God as father and that Jesus Christ is his only son 
That does everything. Eternal life is in God. It's in Christ. So that's what it means to believe in God. You have to believe in him. Not just believe things out there about him. Believe in him. And that kind of drives us to our next question. And the next question is, how is Jesus the bread of heaven? So if, if, that, if we believe in him, how do we receive him? Remember, believing is receiving. If he's the bread of heaven, how do we receive that bread? How do we take it in? And, and the answer, I think, is in this old slightly morbid joke that my family likes to tell sometime. So uh, next time you're having dinner with some people you like, and you're having a good time, and then you just really want to ruin that good time by, make, by making it awkward and weird, here's what you say. You just turn to somebody next to you and you go, you know, everybody who eats this dinner is going to die. That's going to put a stop to the fun real fast. And it's not because the food's poisoned or you've done something to the food. It's because you're pointing out what is fundamentally true. All people die eventually. But Jesus says, if you believe in him, that's the only kind of death that doesn't last. That's only one kind of death, and it's a death that doesn't last very long. So he says it all over this. They received the manna from heaven, but they still died. So look at verse 49. He said, he is the bread of life, or the bread that came down from heaven. And when he says that, he knows that his readers, Jewish listeners, are immediately going to think of this manna comes down from heaven and they, that, that comes down from heaven literally in that exact same way. So manna was a sweet bread that God provided along with the morning dew for a period of time when his people were in severe need. And it remained, this is thousands of years later, one of the greatest examples of God's care for his people. So Jesus is saying on the bread from heaven, they would have immediately thought, What is the bread from heaven? That's manna. In spite of all that, what Jesus is saying is even though when God showed up at that period of time in a huge way, even when he did this miraculous thing every day, he still wasn't providing for the people what they ultimately needed in that way because that kind of bread didn't last forever. Everybody ate it and they lived a little while, but they still eventually died. And Jesus is saying there's a more satisfying bread. There's a better man. If the, if, if, there, if the people could even conceive of this, that every morning they get up, they go outside of their tent, and there's just bread on the ground ready for them to eat. They don't have to do anything for it. Jesus is saying there's an even more miraculous, more God-provided, more satisfying bread. How can that even be? And again, the answer is in the way that Jesus says that God saves. In verse 44, he says that no one comes to the Father unless God first draws him. And in verses 45 to 47, we see the function of that drawing. Meaning the word of God is written in the scriptures, and then the word of God embodied in Christ. That's how we're brought to God. If you just go back in the previous section that we just did last week, You'll see right there in verse 29 that it says, the work of God is to cause people to believe in Jesus. Notice the parallels being used here. You have to eat of the bread that came down from heaven and then you are raised up. The 
bread comes down so that you are raised up. The bread coming down is the mechanism. It's how we are raised up. And it actually kind of rolls right into the third question. So I want to kind of combine these, th- these two. So the third question is, why do we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? The reason is for all of this. How is Jesus the bread from heaven and, and why do we eat of him and drink of him? The reason is because of what it says in verses 53 and 54. If you do not come to him, you have no life in him. But if you do come to him in this way, if you do eat of him and drink of him, you have eternal life. So really quick, let's let's just get this one thing straight. Uh, Jesus does not mean to eat of him and drink of him in a literal sense. That's not ever what he intended here. Uh, Roman Catholics... And a few other people around the world uh, believe that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine become quite literally the body and blood of Jesus. I do not think that's what Jesus had in mind here at all for two primary reasons. First, in verse 56, he says that anyone who believes in him like this abides in him. The word abide means to rest or to remain. It's a, it's a, it's a settled state, a state of peace. Mixing metaphors sometimes is helpful, uh, especially when one metaphor can give the wrong impression. And so Jesus says, if you feed on him, he's kind of mixing metaphors. If you feed on him, you will learn to remain in him and he remains in you or abide in him and he in you. So he's not talking about physical nourishment. He's not talking about food we're eating. He's talking about taking him in in a way that brings you to a state of rest in him and peace through him and in him. And that ties into the second reason. He actually contrasts that type of nourishment, physical nourishment, with the manna in the next verse where he's saying people ate that way. They ate from God food regularly, but then they just got hungry again and eventually they died. So I don't think he means... You need to literally eat him. He's pointing to something symbolic. He's using this as a metaphor to tell us how we must, again, receive him. Believing is receiving. So how do we receive? Why is there so much about eating and drinking? What is he pointing us to? Not if, if that's not literal, what is it pointing to then? How are we to receive him? I think the answer is looking at the metaphor. Food and drink do two things for us. The first is they are essential to life. So we we get that. He's he's using something to say, you need this to live. You can't live without food. You can't live without water. But the second, why does he choose those above all things? He could have said, and this is like, there's a Christian song, this is the air I breathe. He, He could have used oxygen. He could have used something else that's essential to life, but he picks food and water. Why? I think it's because food and water aren't just what we use to live. They're also what we use to celebrate or to come together in joy. In other words, food and drink is how we feast. It's how we actually celebrate abundance. It's how we take from God and say, God has not only given what I need, he's given much more. And, and, and this, this works across the globe. You don't have to be a Christian 
to understand that when people get together for a good time, food and drink are often involved. That works cross-culturally. It works, people even who have other faiths and worldviews do this in virtually every culture and every people group and uh, in every part and country of the world. When there's a celebration, food is a big part of it. And, and I can just, I can prove that to you by saying, my guess is in many of your family holidays and many of your family celebrations, whether from your childhood or now, food's a big part of it. You always have a certain dish because that's part of the celebration. You have a favorite food, and when it's your birthday or a special occasion, you go there. You like a certain restaurant, so when it's your anniversary, you go to that one. Food is a big part of how we rejoice. And so, yeah, we eat it to stay alive, but more profoundly than that, we eat it to celebrate and rejoice. So last week I told you about cooking filet mignons. And that worked. I talked to so many of you. You, were just, you really wanted to talk with me about, looking, uh, about cooking filet mignons. And I'm glad. I had, I'll talk about that all the time. But right now, here's, here's the same. We could do the same thing with food. I'm going to show you this through what I could ask you right now. If I just said, name some of your favorite meals. There are so many things that you could eat to stay alive. That you could drink to just stay alive. But if I said... Tell me about your favorite meals. Tell me what your family tradition is. Tell me what, at what holiday you have and how you cook it. Most of you would be able to just start in on saying, oh, I'll tell you what I like to eat. And I could do that I could do the two. I, I could rattle off. I was just thinking about this while I was preparing. I could rattle off probably a top five meals for me of all time with, without even thinking too much. Uh, they're all meat. All of them are meat. Most of them are steak. I had, a, I had a great, maybe one of the best steaks I've ever had was a steak at, at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. They serve it to you on a 600 degree sizzling plate. Comes out like literally sizzling from the oven. Uh, that was in 2005. What is it, 2023? That was 18 years ago. I still remember that steak. It was so good. Um, when Holly and I got engaged, the day we got engaged, we went of all places to TGI Fridays to celebrate with her family because that's where we had our first date. I don't even know if I, I, we haven't been there in years. Do they even have those anyway, TGI Fridays? I don't even know if they have them, but that still holds a dear place to us. There is a vegetable one. I have a vegetable one. Uh, I went, uh, it was next to a steak. The vegetable was next to a steak, so don't worry. Uh, Holly and I were on vacation. We had a chance to go out on a, a, to a meal on vacation. So we sat there and we had a view of the Atlantic, a bay off the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, I actually do like vegetables a lot. I'm a vegetable guy. And they brought out this steak, but they had, it came with Brussels sprouts. And I took a bite of these Brussels sprouts and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever had in my life. It's so good. And so I, I've never done this before. I just kind of raving about the Brussels sprouts. So I, uh, I, I called the waitress over and I said, hey, I've never done this before in my entire life, but I just have to ask. And she interrupted me and she said, the Brussels sprouts, right? And I was like, yeah, they're so good. What do you do to them? And she said, people ask this all the time. We cook them, we, we saute them in fresh bacon grease. We just we got bacon back there going with other things. We saute them in fresh bacon grease and then it's just salt and pepper. And I was like, all right, bacon grease. That, that explains a lot. They were so good. It doesn't even have to be the best tasting food. I had fast food the day my daughter was born. 
It's Father's Day. Uh, they don't have, they don't feed the dads in hospitals. The mom gets, you know, they just order kind of like room service, just order off the menu. The dads are like, I don't know, we got a cafeteria someplace in the basement. And so uh, my father-in-law was like, let's go out and let's, let's get a burger. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So, so we go out and we got uh, just a, a greasy burger and we sat, it was one of these places, they don't even have uh, an indoor spot. We just sat at a picnic table outside and had what I'm sure was a very mediocre burger. But I had just become a dad, one of the best days in my life. I still remember having that meal. Here's the point. You need to eat to stay alive, so that's part of it. But I think Jesus is pointing to the way we receive him. When you eat good food, you're celebrating. You remember it. It becomes to you joy. And he's saying, you have to receive me that way. That's how you come to me. That's what it means to actively believe in me. Not just believe a few things about me, you know, to know that he was a man and he lived a certain number of years ago. And, you know, maybe you could point to a general area on the map where he lived and you could give a few details of his life. All those meals I told you about, they're not a part of me anymore. But they point to something deeper, right, that is a part of me. I remember a, becoming a dad, and I remember a great date with my wife, and I remember the day we got engaged, and I remember I could, I could, we, I could do this. We could all do this. We could say, oh, we'd had this with this special celebration at this special time, or our family does this to remember every year when we come around to this favorite thing. There are a lot of people in here who probably remember a loved one who's passed away by maybe on their birthday making the dish that was celebrated. Or you, or you say, hey, you, you get a recipe card out and it's, you know, we've got some of these. They're old and they're faded and they're, you know, they're kind of tattered on the edges because it was your mom or dad's recipe card and you make the thing that, that you made, that they made. And you're, you're, yeah, you're making some food. And it'll be, it tastes good, sure it will. But it's, it's about more than that, isn't it? It's more than that. Whoever comes to Jesus like that, like you're savoring a good meal, whoever believes in him like that, then receives him, eats of his body, drinks of his blood, he will never cast you away. So believe in him. If you've not believed in him, come to believe in him. If you are believing in him, keep feasting on him that way. Not just to get through the day. Listen, there is a profound difference, right, in eating a meal. We can, we can swing through a drive-thru and you can shove something in your mouth as you try to, to not run your car off the road. Or you can sit down with people you love in a special place and make special food and just drink in that time. Come to Jesus that way. Savor him. Receive him in that way. That's how you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. That's why you need to do it that way. If you want to live. And when we do that, we're united to him. He promises to raise us up on the last day. The life, the death he lived is the death we die with him. And the life we live is what he raises us up to. Let's pray. God, be glorified and be magnified in our lives. 
We thank you that Jesus is the bread of heaven who has come down so that we might eat of him and drink of him. He did literally give his body and his blood for us on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. May we take that sacrifice and may we live through it and may our life be found in Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.